Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. I'm Dr. Jim Hoven, and it is my pleasure every single week to present to you someone who's making a difference in the lives of others. In this episode, I am super excited because I have on a dear friend of mine. Sometimes I have people that are running businesses, sometimes people that are doing all these cool things. Today, I have someone who's not only running a business and a good friend of mine, but taking care of one of the favorite things in my whole life, animals. Mm -hmm. I have Dr. Liz Filbert with me. Liz, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's, it's crazy to be on something that's like making a difference and you always hope that there's like a point in your life when you're recognized as like maybe someone that's making a difference. So I'm really happy to be here to chat about that a little bit. Well, you know, it is funny you say that because I don't want to jump into this too far ahead um, because you have made a difference in our lives. You have been our vet and, you know, we live far from where the clinic is and for us, because of how you do what you do, which is why this was so compelling for me to have you as a guest on the show, you make the experience of going to the dog tour, as we call it, <laughs> right? We, we make that amazing because our dogs are our, our family. We got yep. four kids and we've got two beautiful dogs. We had yes. three, as you know, yes. we went through that process together. Yes. And just the, the importance that pets play in people's lives is it's, I can't even describe how important it is. So you are truly making a difference both in lives of the animals and the people that love them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> let's talk about you first. Um, you've been a vet for how long? It's been nine and a half years now. So, but it's something like a journey that started way long before I graduated vet school. Um, I think it's one of those professions that I'm pretty, you know, clear to say that you know you want to be a vet from the time that you can remember. Like all of my classmates in vet school were like, yeah, I, I don't remember not wanting to be a vet. And that was so, true for you? Yes. Did yes. you always have animals? Were you always like into them? Or I was always very much into animals, specifically horses when I was growing up. And I know a couple of podcasts ago, you guys had some people from the Western Airs talking and yes. I was a Western Air. That's how my passion for horses grew. Um, but my family, we had like a dog and she was great, but they were kind of like, this is your thing. And when I was 12, got me a horse, which was incredible and helped foster that love for animals. But I think I was just always drawn to animals and having children of my own, you can kind of pick out out of your children, like all kids like animals, but yes. some of them love them. And right. that's where you can feel that. And it starts at a really young age. And that's pretty classic amongst the entire veterinary community. It's something that you're like, I've known forever that I wanted to be this. So, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that when I was a kid, I thought maybe I wanted to be a vet because I loved animals. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you were this person, I would catch snakes in a field and put them in a, in a tank <laughs> and then have them. We would catch little, they call them horny toads, little yep. lizard kind of round silver dollar shaped things. And we would have those and we would catch fish whenever we could. Like it was always about animals. I, yeah. I really enjoyed the process. And then I was like, well, maybe I want to do this on the ocean and all these things went through. But you stuck to it. So mine went in a, in a different direction where I, you know, mine went towards humans on the Cairo side, but you stuck with the animals. It just some, you never strayed from that the whole time. Well, I mean, I think there was a point when I was like, do I want to be a marine biologist? Or like I went on a whale watch in New England and was like totally captivated by that. Um, but then being in like a landlocked state, yes. Colorado, yes. not a lot of opportunity for that. And so I think it just helped push me in the direction more. Um, but I've always known I wanted to work with animals. And I think that even getting like, I worked so hard, even all the way up to undergrad, just 
getting volunteer hours and you hear even at a young age like you have to keep your grades up you have to be a volunteer you have to have a lot of animal experience and so you're building this like resume your entire childhood like I don't remember not working towards that and then getting it up to undergrad and I was sitting in a pre-vet class which I decided to major in animal sciences which is more like ranch life and stuff which I know very little about other than horses <laughs> I'm like I think in fact I was a vegetarian at the time one of the only vegetarians <laughs> in the animal sciences so um but I was sitting in a pre-vet class and it was like intro to pre-vet and they actually came in it was like the first time that I had heard like look to your left look to your right none of you are going to be vets and it was like it's impossible start thinking about plan b because literally nobody in this class is going to make it and I think my whole life, my whole pa my parents were like, if you want to do it, you can do it. Like, just keep working. They never once. And that was the first time I was like, are you serious? Like, I knew it was hard, but I didn't think it was something that if you didn't work hard, you couldn't achieve. And so in my mind, I was like, screw that. Like, I can do this. Yes. And just worked harder, got more involved, dug in deeper. And when I actually got accepted to vet school, took my acceptance letter to that teacher and was like, read this. Like... What We're did good. the teacher say? Okay, that's like, impressive. She was like, "Well, you know, it's just a, it's just an analogy. It's just to get you thinking." And I was like, "Yeah, I got it. Yeah, but, I got gotcha. you." Um, and and I vowed at that point that I was going to say, you know, when I meet younger versions of me, that I would foster that, like I would encourage them and I would push them towards this profession more because it was such a good fit for me. And what I found is that that is definitely true. I still really try to be a good mentor and we have people just even in the clinic where I work that that I've mentored and that I get great satisfaction out of doing. But it's crazy how things have kind of changed in our profession a little bit. And it there are times when I take a step back and I'm like, am I pushing this person in the right direction? Are they strong enough? Not that I feel like I'm the strong person, but are they strong enough to handle the pressures of being a vet today? Because yes. this has changed incredibly in the past, you know, 10 years since I got out of vet school, the whole atmosphere has changed so much. And um, just like the mental health of veterinarians these days and, and what it takes to be a good vet is totally different than when I got out of vet school, even just in 10 years. And so taking a second to think, have I, like, do I know this person well enough? Are they mentally strong enough? I know they want it, but Am I, you know, pushing them into a career that they're going to get the same satisfaction that I get, that they can handle the same pressures that I handle, and that I'm not pushing them into something that's going to ruin their marriage in the future or prevent them from having kids or worse, commit suicide, which is a huge thing in vet medicine now. Yeah. And so it's something that's like come kind of full circle and, um, you know, it's hard to see even friends that have worked their entire life or their young lives to be a vet. And you can be so smart and you can be essentially 100% qualified to go to vet school. And it's still one of those professions where you have to be accepted. Yes. And that acceptance rate is incredibly low. And so to see my friends and colleagues and people that I've met along the way and they've struggled to even get into vet school, it just makes that like that question a little bit more like how hard are we working towards this and is it worth it for everyone? You know, that brings up so many thoughts in my mind, Liz, because, you know, having gone to chiropractic school when I was in college, I went to CSU and I think that's mm -hmm. where you did your training as well. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And at CSU, I was in the pre 
chiro program and they were all pre-med programs. We all took the same stuff and then we went to our respective schools. So my, I had one roommate who was going to the ER medicine program for humans. And then I had one roommate that was going to vet school and he ended up getting into vet school at CSU. So it was the same kind of thing. Like we were always having these conversations about this kind of stuff and was it worth it? And back then we're all in our, you know, early twenties, 19, I was 19 at that time and still working through trying to get into chiropractic school. And there is a certain amount of failure that comes along the way, right? You, like I didn't succeed on every test. I didn't succeed in every lab. And I had to find a way to come back from that, especially like I didn't have what you had to undergo where the acceptance rate is so low. It's so challenging to get in. My, my world was not as technically challenging, but I still had to get after it. How do you um, deal with as now a practicing vet and for those listening who are undergoing some sort of struggles or failure, how do you go about that? Especially when you know the stakes are so high yeah. to get into vet school, not to mention now you're dealing with, with the lives of these animals. Right. What, what do you do to prepare for that, that mentally toughness? Well, that's, a, that's something that I actually struggle with. I think that a lot of us as vets, if you think about sort of the people that are targeted to become vets, they're like type A perfectionists probably haven't failed at much in their life. Like they've worked really hard and, and gotten rewarded for that. Um, and then you put them into a profession and they're empathetic, like they're incredibly big empaths. And so you put them into a profession which is literally designed to fail. No dog is gonna live forever. No cat is gonna live forever. And they will probably pass away or die sometime in your profession, like in the time at that clinic. Or yes. unless it's you know, a parrot. <laughs> yeah, unless it's a parrot or it's like some type of tortoise, and <laughs> then maybe not. But you know, I think, and so you have to get really good at being like, this isn't a failure. You didn't fail this pet. You actually helped them, you know, through this period or helped their owners through this period. And I think that when you can start focusing, I mean, we all go to vet school to become because we love animals and we want to help the animals. But what you really need to understand is that you're helping people. Like this is a profession of people, not, I mean, and the bonuses that we get to help animals and that I get to hang out with really cool animals all the time, but it's the people that you help. And, um, you know, when we, when you think about like those failures and things like that, it's not that you're failing. It's, it's coming to the realization that you're, I mean, I didn't give that pet cancer. I didn't tear that dog's cruciate, like not personally. I'm here to help fix that or to help an owner navigate what is the next steps mm -hmm. and be that, that also that sounding board, that, that conversation person that can guide them with empathy and understand like, okay, surgery isn't for every dog or, you know, an ultrasound isn't for every cat and some owners want to do that and some owners don't. And so there's a lot of listening and responding and saying like, Hey, it's my job to advocate for your pet and my job to give you all this information and then help you make this decision. Like that's my job. It's not to be a miracle worker, although I love it when things work out yes, great. Yes. Um, but it's more to like, help navigate these waters as a general practitioner, I should say. There's so many different facets and that's something I guess we didn't touch on is so many different ways that vet medicine can be applied. I'm a general practitioner. I do kind of the the groundwork of a lot of preventative care and the day-to-day -day stuff. I'll fix the ear infections and, you know, foreign body surgeries and things like that. When you get into some of the more technically critical things, then those are the more miracle workers, I think. Yeah. They're the ones that are like, 
okay, owner, I know you have a lot of questions. Let me do my job. And they're like the ER specialists and things like that. And so we all play our roles. I think that um, what drew me to general practice was the communication with clients. And I didn't think that I wanted to be a pathologist for a little while. I wanted to work actually on dead animals and like figure out why they died and get people closure that way. And I realized I wouldn't talk with people and I Mm. love talking to people. And so, um, I think I commonly say, you know, I got into vet medicine because I love animals. I stay in vet medicine because I love people. I love that. And, um, and I love how much people, I love how much people love their pets. And I like to foster that bond and help people understand that a bit because there's so much information out there on the internet and through your neighbors and through, you know, somebody's dog who stopped eating and they fed it this and you're like, wait, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation. And so if if I can be a grounding source or a guiding source of helping people understand those things better, that's, that's what my job is. That's what I love. So let me ask you this. Is it true or is it just anecdotal? that you will see tons of pets that have the same personalities as their owners. Cause I've <laughs> yes. seen that, right? Like I'm sure. like, and it makes me wonder, are my dogs like me? <laughs> oh no. Or am I like my dogs? Have you seen that a lot? Oh seen all these different animals? I love it when that happens. In fact, that's like the goal is that when you and your pet are such mirror images, um, and sometimes that happens because of just the way that you train them and, or the way that you respond to what they're doing. Um, and, but if that's what's going on, then you probably share very similar lifestyles and those emotional and physical needs of that pet are probably being met. It's worse to me when people are opposites of their pets, when, you know, you live a more sedentary lifestyle or in an apartment, even, even if you're a very avid, like exercise person and you have like a border collie who's a you know a working dog stuck in a small area all the time and you're like okay now we have behavioral problems um and this lifestyle is more suited for like a pug or something like that so it's so much better when people do emulate their pets qualities um i love it even more when people like look like their pets that's always classic (laughs) and i mean it's always in the best way like i mean i think that um you see like the little old ladies with the little old poodles and things like that and it's just it, it makes the like add some levity to the job a little bit and makes it more fun when you can kind of relate to the pets that way. No kidding. And remember the pets that way. There's so many pets and patients and it's like, oh yes, you know, this, this client has this pet and remember they kind of both have the same color hair. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, we'll be walking down the street and in our neighborhood, we walk our dogs every day. And there are some people that we didn't know for the longest time, but we knew the name of their dog. Oh, so we're sure. like, oh, that's that's Bear's parents. Yes. Right? And and so I don't know if that happens oh. when you're in the clinic. Like you get to know the identity yes. of the family through the pet. And you're like, for in our case, Sasha or Toshi, that's who yep. you see of our dogs or Rudy. Oh, those are Sasha's parents. Yep. That, that kind of thing. Does that happen yeah. a lot? Oh my gosh. Yes, of course. And I think it's worse for me when I'm like at the grocery store because I practice in the town that I grew up in and have lived in, you know, before before undergrad and vet school and then after and so i know a lot of the town and um i'll walk through the grocery store and somebody will be like dr Philbert," and i'm like oh my gosh that is you know fluffy mcguire <laughs> that's ann mcguire okay hi ann oh. like it's like you remember the pet's name first and then you have to like piece it all together and it's not because i don't love the people it's just you know i deal with the you know the names of the pets more yes. i'm looking at that file more and thinking <laughs> about that blood work on that dog more and things like that so so, so when you're dealing with a pet mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because as a you know when i had lots and lots of patients the great thing that i could always count on 
was their feedback to tell me how the work we were doing was working sure. with them. You don't have that advantage. The, unless you have a parrot or something, yeah. <laughs> nothing speaks back to you. Nothing says, oh, Dr. Liz, my knee hurts here. Right. And this is what makes it better. This is what makes it worse. That, like they can't be good historians because they can't speak. Yep. How do you, how do you, how do you as a vet manage to understand the impact that your work is having? Is it, is it mostly objective stuff with the blood work and orthopedic findings and all that? Or how sure. do you work? I mean, I think it's great when the objective things line up. Um, and that really is that concrete evidence that you're like, great, we're making progress. Um, but lab work only shows us like a snapshot in time and and pets like people defy the odds all the time and i'll get lab work on a pet and i'm like oh my god how is this animal even alive and they're up and running around in the exam room it's like okay something isn't right like this isn't and how do you then go into the client and say like hey your dogs are really sick and they're like no they're not they're fine so it's great when they do line up um i think we use a lot of markers. Like there are definitely objective things, but a lot of it is subjective. Um, and it's based on their owner's perception too. So um, I think about it even a lot with like quality of life decisions and um, end of life decisions. Like I often tell people when it's getting closer, like, I don't know how they're doing. It's like, okay, think of, I want you to actually get a physical calendar that you're going to dedicate to this, like just like a, you know, a month long calendar. And I want you to put like five things in the corner that they do every day. And it has to be more than just eating and drinking. It's like meets you at the door, still brings you its toys, um, wants to lay in like the sun, seeks out your affection, those types of things. And I want you to go through that. And sometimes in the beginning, it's like go through it once a week and just see, are they still doing it? When it gets closer, I have people then look at it. I'm like, go through that every day. And if they're doing four out of the five things, that's a green day and color that day in green. If they're doing like three or four or three or four of them, then it's like a yellow day. And then if they're really not doing much of those, that's a red day. And you can actually see the decline in a pet over the course of a month, like green to yellow to red. And that's when you can then know that like your the quality mm. of life is actually declining. And sometimes that is just helpful to give something that's so subjective, a more objective that's brilliant. You know, in a more objective way to look at it. And I think that that's probably the hardest decision any pet owner makes is like, when do we make that decision? And everybody would love if their pet, they always say that they would love if their pet just passed away peacefully at night. And I would, and I would love to say that that happens. It doesn't all the time. In fact, rarely does it ever just happen peacefully alone. Um, but there's some beauty in the fact that like we can be there with them at the end and that we have some say in how that last day is gonna go, or we have some say in in what we say to them at the end that yes. that provides us comfort. Yes. Whereas if they if you just walked home walked in one day and they were already gone and you're like, Well, I don't know, were they scared? Were they alone? Like I think that that you know, when we get to the end like that, that's one of the the beautiful parts of what we do. Is that something two two part question, is that the hardest part of your job is is end of life stuff as what you do. And then part two, do you um, have that conversation that you just had with me? Do you have that with them, not only on the calendar, but hey, look at, I want you to look at this from this perspective. Cause you and I went through this together, yes. right? Only we, it wasn't expected. We yeah. didn't expect it to go down that, fast. that yes. day that it went down. And so you were amazing. Like I couldn't imagine it having gone better. And, and you saw, I mean, mm -hmm. shoot all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it's hard. I get choked up on it too. I definitely just that. I mean, and it's because they give us everything. Yeah. 
it's fascinating. It still brings me emotion, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah. I'll get it together here. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to make um, me cry. I cry all the time. <laughs> so is that the hardest part of your job, though, is the end of life stuff? Um, I, I think it's what the public perceives as our hardest mm -hmm. part of our job. It's definitely not fun. Like I will be very clear about that. Like I see a euthanasia or a quality of life conversation on my schedule and I'm like, I think about, it. I'll look at like a week in advance and I'll start to see some of these things come up and I will literally think about it all the time. Right. Like I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, what am I going to tell these people? What, you know, how are we going to get through this? Maybe they'll be better. I'm like yeah, an optimist and I right. kind of hope that the dog comes running in and they're like, maybe it's not time. I'm like, it's not, let's come <laughs> <Yeah>. back, you know? <laughs> and so I would love it if that was how every conversation went. Um, so I think the public perceives it as that. Um, but like I said, it's an honor mm -hmm. to be entrusted with Absolutely. that decision. And to if you've seen a pet pass away without the assistance of humane euthanasia, without those sedatives and then the euthanasia, um, and it's in general peaceful. Like it's mm -hmm. euthanasia means peaceful passing. And so um, it's somewhat, you know, complete in the full circle. And I, like I said, I don't like doing it, but it's, it's something where it's like almost like a gift yes. that I can give. It's so true. Yes. That is so true. And and that's how we looked at it. It was yeah. a true gift. And man, I can't imagine um, the difference that the, the parents, I, I just call us, you know, puppy yeah, parents or fur, parents. fur baby fur parents baby. or whatever. <laughs> fur parents. Yeah. I can't imagine the comfort that you've been able to bring people through the end of lifetimes and through rescuing what we would see as rescuing, right? Yeah. Like again, we've brought all of our dogs up to you and you've had to work on something and it makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. What relationship do you end up finding? Like, I know we're really close, mm -hmm. right? Cause we're friends outside of, of the doctor patient sure. relationship. Do you find that you get a chance to connect um, deeply with a lot of the parents of the oh, puppies? Oh, sure. I mean, obviously our relationship is special. But no. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. <laughs> no, but yes. In fact, that's why I, I love being a general practitioner and having the time afforded in my schedule. There was one time that we were talking about going to shorter appointments, and I was like, no, like I need that time to connect with these people. I need them to trust me. I have like a saying that's on my... I printed it out. I don't know if you want me to read it, but this yeah, is please. a saying that we've I've recently put up in my exam room and it could make me emotional too. So bear with me. Um, and it's called a letter to my clients. And what it says is this is hanging in the wall of my exam room. It's something that you can read when you're waiting for me to come in after the nurse has, has um, taken the history. And um, it says, dear client sitting in this exam room, maybe this is your first visit or perhaps we've been friends for a while. Regardless of how or when we met, I want you to know that when you sit in my exam room, you and your pet are now a part of my family. Mm. I want you to feel comfortable asking questions and voicing concerns as we work together to care for your pet. It is a very important part of our relationship that it is built on mutual trust and respect. I assure you in making medical recommendations, I will treat your pet as if it is my own. I promise to help you navigate difficult decisions with empathy, compassion, and thereby honor the love and bond you share with your pet. I was, this is the part that I kind of said earlier, but I was drawn to veterinary medicine because of my love for animals, but I choose to make this my life's work because of my love for people. To put it simply, I love how much you love your pet. And as we navigate this exam and whatever it has in store for us, 
Please know I do so with all of the knowledge in my brain, the skills in my hands, and the love in my heart. Your friend and partner, Liz Filbert. Whoa, that is so powerful. I'll bet you've gotten a lot of comments on that. You know, it's something we just recently put up. Um, and so I don't know how many people have actually read it. It's been kind of crazy. But it's something that I hope people realize is like, you know, I don't have a way to like email all of my personal clients or, mm -hmm. you know, talk to them one-on-one -on -one all the time. And so it's just a way to like reach out especially after this pandemic where we were more curbside and I wasn't able to see people like for a whole year, not able to see people face to face was really hard. Yes. And so it's kind of a second to, you know, come back together. Some people come into they, everybody brings different things into that exam room. Some people are, you know, just there for like that relationship. And we talk a lot and some people come in pretty hot and they're like, you know, how much is this going to cost? And what are we going to do? And how come you can't fix this? And this kind of sets the tone that like, we're a partnership in this. And I am here because I want to help you. Mm -hmm. And like, um, you know, I think after this pandemic, everybody has been a little bit shorter in compassion and empathy for each other. And I was just even at breakfast this morning and on their, their sign, they said, the world is short staffed. Please be kind to those of us that showed up. Whoa. And so I was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And that fits in so many service industries, which I consider vet medicine to be part of. Um, and so, you know, I think if you're bringing whatever you're bringing into that exam room, I hope that this already sets that tone of like, we're going to build a relationship. That's our goal. Like yes. I want us to connect however we can, and we're going to build on this That's together. That's beautiful. You, you mentioned the pandemic. Did you notice anything with respect to pets or their owners? Did pets and owners get more connected? Is there more of this now separation anxiety? <laughs> I saw a TikTok video, yeah. which is the opposite. I can't even repeat what it said, but it's the funniest <laughs> thing ever about this dog and this dog is sitting by itself and it's like, all right, this thing has got to end. <laughs> I just want to go back to doing what I was doing as yes. a dog. Get out, go do something. Go leave me alone. Leave me alone. No, it's what really funny it that you say that because in the beginning when like it was crazy, nobody knew what was going on. We still don't know what's going on. But when it was very new, um, we went decided to go curbside, meaning you sat in your car and you bring the pets in we bring the pets in and then we bring them back out to you. And that was like a way to kind of limit contact with each other. And um, we got so many calls in the beginning that were like, something's wrong with my dog. Something's really wrong. I'm like, okay. They're like, they're just laying around. I'm like, okay. I mean, I've been home all day and they just sleep. And I'm like, that's what they do. <laughs> when you were at work, that's what they were doing. And now we see the opposite. Now it's like, <laughs> I'm going back to work and they won't leave me alone. And these poor pets are like, we don't know what to do. Like yes. you interrupted our private space <laughs> for the better. I think pets in general were like one if in the pandemic. If somebody had to win, it's the pets yep. um, because they loved having everybody at home. But now we are seeing the opposite, which is, um, you know, as people are starting to get back into the workforce and going back in, the dogs are like, wait a second, like you're part of my family and you're leaving me here. And so we're seeing a lot more like separation anxiety and having a lot more conversations about meeting those um, emotional and physical needs of your pet. So if you're home all day and you're walking around, your pet's following you, they're getting energy out and they're, they're having something to think about. And if all of a sudden you're gone, there's no outlet for that energy except for bad things. So they're going to destroy things. They're going to hurt them. They're going to lick themselves or, or, you know, chew on the bars of their kennel or whatever. And so making sure that you're 
making up for that time with like exercise and emotional enrichment and, you know, training time and stuff like that is super important. Um, I think a lot of times we would all love it if it's like a magic pill, if I could be like, here's your calm dog down pill. Yes. And um, that just doesn't exist. And so I have, it's amazing how much just in probably the past mm, three or four months, the conversations are very much centered around at like annual exams and stuff around anxiety and anxious behavior and things like that. And so I think if there's any advice I can give to people is like, if your dog is healthy enough, tired dogs can't be anxious. So if you can get them out for exercise and you can work their mind through training, um, you're going to have a less anxious pet. So what do you think about this? Does it make sense whether it's dogs or cats and maybe other pets, this might include it too, so many people have one. Do do animals do better in pairs? I know dogs, they're meant to be in packs. Sure. And it's not always reasonable, right? Like whether it's financially or space-wise, sure. you might not be able to have that. But in general, is the health of a pet better with another pet around that it can bond with? Or is that human pack, that human compatibility enough? Yeah, I mean, I think the health of the dog owner is better if there's more. Um, I think that there are certain breeds where, yes, I actually think there is a like genetic need to be in packs. I think like beagles are one and like foxhounds are one. And a lot of our northern breeds, like a lot of the sled dogs are dogs that you should probably have too, I guess. But do they absolutely need it? No. And it's if you are still a good companion to them. Um, I think, you know, leaving them for hours on end is hard on them. If they have another dog or cat in the house, then maybe they're not as lonely. And that might be putting too much like human emotion yes. into it. Right. Um, at my house, we call it Noah's Ark syndrome. Like I have like <laughs> two of everything and or more. And so everything goes two by two. And um, I think that's probably more for my mental. I, again, putting the human logic into it was thinking like, well, if you went to a foreign country, you didn't speak any of the language, wouldn't it be great if you at least had one other person that you could talk to? And so whether or not that's true, it's it's probably not. But I think that people do better knowing that their pet's not 100% alone. And yes. it allows them to set those boundaries where it's okay for me to go to the grocery store and it's okay for me to go out of town and leave you with the pet sitter and your other you know, housemates. Um, is it 100% essential? No. But do I like it when people have lots of pets? Sure. I yeah. like to see all those pets. So. Me too. I, I'm a big fan and I think the same way as you because I think yeah. from my perspective, well, if I was a dog, mm -hmm. I would want this. So you know, I was curious about that and you know, that goes so much into pet training and, and spending, really investing in your pet, not necessarily just money, but time and money, thinking about the food that you give them, just like us, right? Yeah. We run better on better fuel. And it's not that we can't get away with eating bad food for a long, long time, but it's catching up with us. So mm -hmm. when you put that combination, I think to be a good parent of a pet, you need to look at, are you ready? And what does that yeah. mean? What does that look like? What are the characteristics of being a good pet owner? I think the first thing is, is do you have a lifestyle that's conducive to having a pet? And even maybe equal to that is, do you have the finances available to that pet? Because pet care is expensive. And I think there can be this not notion that, oh, I rescued him. So he's lucky that he even has a home with me. And so I can't afford to do that dental cleaning or I can't afford to do, you know, surgery on X, Y, Z. And that 
I wish that wasn't a part of it. I wish I could do my entire job for free. I would love it. Like that's my goal. If I want a billion dollars, I would just still do my job and just not charge anybody. So mm-hmm. when I win the lottery, you guys know where to go. But <laughs> just um, keep a shoebox yeah, out. Right? And people will just drop in whatever drop, money yeah, they want. Drop in some dollars. Yep. Um, but I think that um, the realistic part of it is that pets are a luxury, and they are not a requirement. And so. Um, to get a pet and to just think of it as like checking off a box, like, oh, I have kids and they want a dog, is so unfair to that pet um, that it ends up catching up. And it's never as a puppy. Like, yeah, the puppy shots are expensive and getting them spayed or neutered is, can be expensive. But it's when they're 10 years old and now they have cataracts and they need cataract surgery or they're diabetic and they need daily injections. And are you going to show up for your pet when they need you? Um, and that's the question that you have to ask. Like, Am I in this for the long haul? Because if you are, it's worth it. it. You will get way more than what you invest yes. into it out of it. But if you're not, it's not wrong. Like you're not, it doesn't have to, you don't have to have a pet. You don't. Um, and so looking at it from that perspective, um, you know, being prepared for that, I think is something that we fortunately are getting better at. I think that a lot of people are starting to realize the cost of, vet care and that a lot of the same medications that we use and a lot of the same, you know, medical instruments that we, they come from human medicine. So, you know, while so many pets don't have pet insurance and that's like a subject for a whole nother day, um, the cost is still there. And so for me to prescribe you, you know, certain painkillers for your dog, it could be the same ones that, you know, are coming out of a human pharmacy as well. And so that cost would be yeah similar but people don't look like they don't realize that right um and so i think that's a huge part about like when you know you're ready is when you are financially ready i love seeing young couples that don't have kids yet get a pet because i really do think that on the flip side of that what do pets prepare you for it's having children yes like deciding to put more of your own energy into something that's beside yourself and to have to think about something else beside yourself um, prepares you for having children in, you know, mold, more ways than one. But, um, so that's something that they definitely give to us. I think that they, um, the thing that often gets slid over though, is the, is that price of, of care in general, like don't get a great Dane if you don't want to spend money on dog food Yeah, <laughs> and don't get, you know, a, a dog that barks a lot, like a beagle. If you live in an apartment, like these are things, these are other things that you can consider and so often everybody in Colorado is great about this. They all want to rescue dogs. And I love that. Like we place more dogs here than any other state. Um, dogs come in from out of state. They ship them in to be placed here because a dog will stay in the shelter for days as opposed to months, other places, which I love that about Colorado. I find that oftentimes people though don't quite know what they're getting into when they get a rescue dog and rescuing dogs isn't for everyone. And this is where I think I, might be speaking out on a limb from some of my other professionals. I don't mind when you get a purebred dog, if you've done your research and you're prepared to then, like if you spend $2,000 on a dog and you can't afford the vaccines, like that's when we have a problem. But if you have done your research about the type of dog that you want, that's good for your lifestyle, that's a good fit. I don't care where you got it from. I'm just happy to help you take care of it. Yeah. Um, and I just see that sometimes like people get into the situations where they go to a shelter, they want a dog that day and they come home with, you know, a really high anxious, you know, two year old dog that's never been in the house before, maybe never been around kids before. And 
we're trying to make this dog now fit into this lifestyle, which is adding a lot of anxiety on the pet. Right. And, and the family. And the family. Yeah. And then they feel like they failed if it doesn't work out. And it's just like, no, you were never set up to succeed. Yeah. So, so you know, there's been a lot of studies that have been done or research talking about the connection between happiness and longevity in humans. The, if you're happy in your relationships, if you're happy in the connections that you have socially, if you're doing those things, that it can offset some of the negative habits you may have in your life and it leads to longevity. I've also heard that having pets has been statistically shown mm -hmm. to increase happiness. Mm -hmm. And so is that, can you speak to that as, as far as you know? And pets may, we may be talking pets as cats and dogs right now, but pets can be hamsters and, yeah. and they can be a lot of things. Reptiles, some people, mm -hmm. I don't know how affectionate reptiles are, but you know, they, some people really yeah, love that them. kind of thing. Yeah. So can you speak to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I could probably dig up like statistics and stuff, but just kind of even from my own anecdotal um, experience, my grandmother, she's 91, she just turned 91, um, and she has a little perfect white Persian cat, like you would expect a 91-year-old woman to have, and his name is Bo. We call him Bo Beautiful, even though he's not very beautiful. <laughs> uh, but we call him Bo Beautiful, and he is her... Like he is her touchstone to reality. And then a woman who is losing that every day, he is her consistent. Like she knows that he needs to be fed. She looks for him. He sleeps with her in her bed. That is something that I think is super important. I think is as we work longer into our lives, as we, we don't retire quite as young anymore or, or we need to work longer, sometimes like we're working into our 70s or 80s and then we go from that to nothing, to retirement. And we lose that touchstone on like the day-to-day -day activities that need to be done. And that's where sometimes our pets can kind of help. And that's, we saw that with my grandparents is when my grandfather retired at like, I don't know, 85 or something. And then they got this cat <laughs> and it really helped provide them with that, that I'm still needed feel like something still depends on me. And, and then they get that reward of that affection in return. And that in and of itself, I think has not just enriched my grandparents' lives, but has prolonged them. Beautiful. For the that is beautiful. Yeah. So what's the strangest, most unique animal you've ever treated? Oh my gosh. Personally, or just been a part of? <laughs> I don't um, know about that. That sounds like a loaded question. <laughs> um, well, on a day-to-day -day basis, I my favorite thing to take, well, I shouldn't say my favorite. I love the dogs and the cats. I started as an equine vet um, out of vet school and did mostly horses and then some dogs and cats and then really fell in love with dogs and cats and started doing less and less horses. Um, not because I don't love them, just like different, different pulls in different directions for that and found a lot of fulfillment there and sort of picked up that kind of unique quality where I see a lot of micro pigs, like mini pigs, mini pigs. And they're not like mini, like they don't stay 10 pounds forever, but a lot of my micro pigs are like 50 pounds and under some are a little over that. Um, and I have like this little niche of clientele that bring these pigs in and my techs are all well-versed in how to like hold a pig and we trim their hooves and we trim their tusks and we give them vaccines. And we talk a lot about, you know, environmental enrichment and what these, how these are different than dogs and things like that. And I really, really enjoy those conversations. Um, so that's something on a day-to-day -day basis that I uniquely work on. That's yeah. different than my colleagues. Um, we have another vet at our hospital that sees a lot of exotic pets. So she sees the snakes and the lizards. She used to do a lot of birds and chickens. She's kind of gotten farther away from that, but, um, 
she does like all of the small mammals, so rats and things like that. Um, in vet school, we got the chance to work on, um, I think, a root canal on a tiger. And Wow. Um, I think one of my favorite, this isn't like that exotic, but it was really cool for me, um, was to work on some of the bucking stock. So like the bucking horses that are not trained, like they aren't like halter broke to, and trying to get them in for an MRI of a leg and just like the whole team mentality on how you have to think about sedating a horse that could easily kill you um, and wants to kill you um, and getting them from you know the pen into the hospital under anesthesia for an MRI of a leg and just the teamwork that goes into that and just thinking about everything. Um, in undergrad, I was fortunate to work on um, chimpanzees up in Oregon at a chimpanzee sanctuary. And I got to like help with some of that vet care. And, um, that was, you know, super rewarding and didn't realize how terrifyingly dangerous it was in the time. And now I'm glad <laughs> I survived, but you know, you come across these opportunities as a vet and people hear you're a vet and they're like, Oh, like, come look at this and come look at that. And, um, so yeah, I get the chance to look at some crazy things sometimes. So what about the different types of physiology or anatomy and you know everything that you're dealing with probably has a heart and probably yeah. has lungs and has yeah. a nervous system but a snake from mm -hmm. a bird from mm -hmm. a dog to a cat is there a lot of variation and that's what i think is amazing about vets is you have to know if you're and you're going to specialize you're going to find your niche but you have to have a basic knowledge of a lot of different yeah. animal types what's that like it's intimidating, I think, in the beginning. And I think it's something that, you know, if you ask vets, they'll definitely brag on the fact that, like, we know all of the same things that a doctor knows, but in multiple species, yeah. <laughs> like an MD. Um, and so it's a, it's definitely bragging rights. But in vet school, like, we had all of the train, like, I mean, up until we had to decide if we were going to do small animal or large animal, we learned everything. And that was, like, for the first two years of vet school, so I guess to kind of be clear, you do four years of undergrad and then four years of vet school. And then some people even go on longer in their training to like specialize in certain, certain areas beyond that. And so um, we're talking about vet school here. And the first two years is pretty much the same. You learn normals and then abnormals for all these different species. Um, and then you kind of decide from there if you want to still learn about all of them. And so I decided to, to track the mixed animal where small animals and large animals, which included some exotics. Um, or if you want to specialize in one or the other. And so the crazy part is, is when you go at the end of the four years and you go to get, you take your test, it's called the NAVLI, um, you were tested on everything. So just because you want to work on dogs and cats and you've always grown up, you are still learning about pigs and you're tested about pigs and chicken medicine and sheep, you know, and goats and all of that. And so you're still tested on that. And I remember getting out of, like somehow I thought I was gonna make it through vet school learning about dogs and horses. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna be a horse and dog vet, like the dog and yeah. pony show, yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I went through my test and I got out of there and I'm like, that entire test was cats and cows, I swear to God. <laughs> and I was like, maybe that's just because I didn't feel strong in those areas. And then this girl who's practicing feline medicine only, so only cats, she goes, that was the best test ever. It was all cats. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it was all cats. So um, it is one of those unique 
uh, I guess, areas of medicine where you are, you're, you know, as a general practitioner, especially you are the pediatrician, you are the dentist, you're the anesthesiologist, you're the surgeon, you are the podiatrist and, you know, you do all of it. You have all of these different things. And now, you know, master of all trades, you know, but specialize in none, that can be definitely the case. Sometimes I feel like I'm like, I have a, a broad-based knowledge of a lot of things, but I am not specialized in one. And so that's where then you also have to have this drive and this willingness to continue learning and reaching out to your colleagues that are specialized in areas. Like I have a call right now for actually somebody who works here's dog, um, waiting to hear back from the specialist on on her dog's, you know, kidney issue and trying to narrow that down so that we can hopefully get him on the right medication. She maybe doesn't have to see the specialist. Now, if the specialist says the internist is like, this is too much, you need to just send them to me, then that's the decision we'll make. But you have to be willing to do that to be not just a good vet, but a great vet. Go that next step where you're like, I'm going to keep looking into this. I'm with you. I'm your teammate. I told you, you were my family. Like, I'm going to do this because if your pet was my pet, this is what I'd want. How do you how do you characterize a good vet? If someone's looking for a vet, mm-hmm. what should they do? What questions should they ask to say, man, that's a good vet? It's clear, like when you know greatness, yeah. when you see it, talking to you, I can, I know you're a great vet. Yeah. Not only from my own experience, but just someone listening to this, they're gonna know based on your passion and and your concepts and everything else. Mm-hmm. But if someone needs to find a vet, what would they look for? Well, I think probably similar to you know why when you're looking for a pediatrician not every vet is going to be that for everyone and that's something that i've actually struggled with because i am a people pleaser like i want to be everyone's vet mm-hmm. but i'm not i'm not everybody's cup of tea and so first like establishing that it's okay to not be everyone's favorite is i think and it's okay if you don't like your vet and you want to look for somebody else it doesn't mean they're a bad vet um i think that looking for somebody that you truly can trust um, and when you when you sit down in that conversation and you feel like they get you either because they're no fluff and they're straight to the point and they're very direct and honest and that's what you want, or there's somebody that's like, hey, your dog has some dental disease and you're like, oh God, we'll work we'll work through this together. And that's what you that's how you want to perceive that information. It's how you want to accept the information. I think as vets, we're all trained similarly. Now how we take what we know out into the, in, you know, into the world, into our environment, it varies. Um, but I think the biggest thing that your relationship needs to be built on is trust. Because if I, if you don't trust me and I spend all of my time worrying about building that trust, we don't have time to fix your pet. Like there isn't enough hours in a day. If you're not going to trust what I say, if I have to defend every single thing like we're not a good fit and that's okay and i can lead you to somebody else that maybe will be a better fit or if you want to go somewhere else i will send your records wherever you want the most important thing is that you trust your vet and that you feel like you guys are a partnership beautiful and what if someone wanted to become a vet do you have any words of advice you you talked to that a little bit ago saying hey you know you try to help steer them mm-hmm. if they should go in this direction because there's a business game to it. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a rejection game to it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot to it. But if someone is listening or knows someone who wants to be a vet, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I'm, I, again, it's been a hot minute since I was going through this, um, but I really tried to stack my resume with a broad variety of experiences because I think, what's important and we touched on it just a second ago what's important as a vet is not like oh that you know of the answers before you get to vet school it's are you adaptable are you going to be okay when the snake walks into the room or slithers in (laughs) um versus when you have like a 
you know, a bucking bull, a 2000 pound bucking bull, like, are you going to be adaptable and, or is that going to be too much? And that doesn't necessarily make or break a vet, but I think if you can show, like I've worked on all these, in all these different situations and you can show how that would make you a relatable person, that's going to go really far. Um, I think when they're applying to vet school, so that happens even before you're making your application that happens in high school and builds in, in undergrad. Um, and so it involves a lot of stuff like giving up weekends to go do volunteer work or, you know, just that dedication. It's so much more than just having good grades. The great, good grades are like the standard. You have to have everybody, everybody, everybody has in, to. Yep. Um, it's almost impossible to even get your application looked at if you don't have the grades. But beyond that, there are a lot of people that have a 4.0 that still didn't get into vet school. And so making that application really diverse and also being able to articulate how different experiences, how working in a nursing home taught you compassion that you can use when you're working in a vet clinic. Like you don't have to have all vet experience. It's great if you do, but how you can take the things that you learn in life and put that towards vet medicine, because this is a career that is not just a job. It is a lifestyle. Like this is something that you take home with you. There's no way not to, you'll wake up at three in the morning thinking about these pets. Like it is your lifestyle. And so being able to learn from your surroundings and extrapolate from all of experiences is something that they look for, I yeah. think, and makes you a well-rounded vet. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's super important um, as like the additional, in addition to being, you know, smart and getting good grades. Um, yeah, because you don't have to be a genius to be a vet. Like I'm not a genius. You just have to want to work hard to find the answers. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to show that that's the type of personality that you are. Beautiful. So. I have one more question for you. Sure. And I ask this to all my guests. Oh boy. If you had one piece of advice that has meant the most to you or something you've learned along the way that you would consider a key piece of advice it, just in life for anybody mm -hmm. listening, what would that be? Oh, I, I, I guess, you know, I'm not sure about the best piece of advice about my entire life, but I think as we're talking about vet medicine, is be kind to your vet. Be kind to anybody who is yeah. willing to help you. Um, and that goes anywhere. But anybody who's willing to take the time to help you from your chiropractor that's working on you in the park, like Dr. Hoven did for me <laughs> in a park randomly, is helping my neck to relieve a headache to the vet who is calling you at eight o'clock at night when they'd much rather be with their family, but they know that you can't go another day without those blood work results. Like just be kind to them because I think this job is, there's so many times that I get thanks and it's not a thankless job, but I think that people often take for granted how much vets give of themselves into this profession. And if you have a vet that you love, like reach out to them and tell them that you love them. Oh, I love that. I love you. Oh, how about thanks. that? <laughs> I'm telling my vet, I love you. Oh. So if people wanted to reach out to you, Liz, and learn more about um, your clinic, and sure. by the way, tell us where, give the name of your clinic, and then if people want to reach out, how would they connect with you? Yeah, um, I work at The Animal Doctor, and it's in Broomfield, um, and our phone number is 303-466-8888, um, and we have four very, very qualified vets. Oh, that's another good piece of advice, just to throw so back on I, yeah, that just to go back that if your vet or if your pet is not sick plan on scheduling out a couple weeks for their wellness visit right now in vet medicine it's very very packed everybody got pets there's not enough vets and so 
keep, you know, keep that in mind. And if your pet is sick, get on it quickly because you might be still out a couple days and don't wait till the end to make those appointments. So if you need any help with anything, give me a call. I'm more than happy to chat about it. Um, and we, like I said, we have some other great vets there that are all excellent as well. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Liz. This has been a wonderful treat for me talking to you and talking about (laughs) animals and pets and just a great time. Thanks for spending it with me. Sure. My pleasure. 